Amen. All right, well, we're there in Jonah, chapter number three, and we've been working our way through the book of Jonah on Sunday mornings, and this is now the fourth uh, sermon in this uh, series, Jonah, chapter number three. If I could get somebody to help me out, if I could just get a, a, a water. I don't see one in here. If I could... Thank you, Brother Stuck. You appreciate it. Uh, Jonah chapter number three. You remember when we started uh, this series, uh, we learned in the first chapter just kind of things to consider before you run, things to consider before you run from God and before you decide to quit on God. And in the second sermon, uh, we learned about the sign of the prophet Jonas, and we learned about the picture and the prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ that we find in this book. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And, uh, and then last week, we learned about getting right with God and how to get right with God. In this sermon, when we get to chapter 3, uh, we see that Jonah finally makes his way to Nineveh. In fact, if you're there in chapter 3, look at verse 1. It says, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. And what we find in this chapter is that one of the greatest revivals that I, I believe the world has ever known happens here in Jonah chapter number 3, and it happens as a result of powerful preaching by the prophet Jonah. And what we're going to learn about this morning and what I want to talk about for the next few moments is on the subject of preaching that makes a difference, preaching that makes a difference. The Bible says that God has ordained the foolishness of preaching, that He has ordained the ministry of preaching in order to help his people, and to make a difference in the lives of His people. And I want us to learn just from this chapter, you know, this is a, a great uh, example of, of a sermon or, a, you know, a, a preaching that made a huge difference in the city of Nineveh. And I want to just take a few moments this morning and kind of look at that and break down this chapter for you. Uh, for those of you taking notes, I'd like you to maybe write these statements down. But the first thing I want you to notice when we uh, kind of dig into this chapter is the elements of preaching that makes a difference. What is the difference between preaching that makes a difference and preaching that makes no difference? Or what, is, what are the characteristics? And especially for you guys, you know, we have several men in our church that are learning to preach and studying to preach, and maybe one day we'll be able to, to preach uh, as part of their own ministries and things like that. And I, I want you guys to kind of listen to this idea of what, what does good preaching, according to the Bible, and there's lots of things. I mean, we could go through a whole list, and in fact, one of these days, uh, you know, I'm going to preach a sermon on characteristics of good preaching, and I might not do it here. I might do it as a guest speaker somewhere else, but you guys can listen to that and learn from that as well. But I want you to notice there's two elements that we see in the story of Jonah in regards to the preaching that makes a difference. The first one is that his preaching was scriptural. Notice Jonah chapter 3 and verse 2 there. It says, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach, and preach unto it. And I want you to notice, this, it's a small phrase, but it's it, it makes a huge impact. It says, the preaching that I bid thee. God tells Jonah that I'm going to send you to Nineveh, and I'm going to send you there to preach. But he said, when you preach, I want you to preach what I bid thee, what I tell you to preach. Now, you might ask yourself, well, why would God have to say that to Jonah? Doesn't everybody preach the bidding that God has sent them to preach? But the answer to that question is no. 
Unfortunately, they're in the time of Jonah, and even today, there are many false prophets that are not preaching what God has called them to preach. Let me give you an example of there. Go with me to the book of Jeremiah. You're there in the book of Jonah. If you head backwards, you're going to go past Obadiah, past Amos, past Joel, past Hosea, past Daniel, past Ezekiel, past um, uh, Lamentations, a small book of Lamentations, then you have the book of Jeremiah. You can find the big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. They're all there towards the beginning of those, that prophet section in the Old Testament. And when you get to Jeremiah, do me a favor and put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave the book of Jeremiah and we're going to come back to it several times during the sermon. So I want you to be able to get there quickly. But I want you to notice what the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 14 and verse number 14. Jeremiah chapter number 14 and verse number 14. Notice what the Bible says. Jeremiah 14, 14, then the Lord said unto me, this is God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, notice what he says, he says, the prophet, so God is speaking to Jeremiah about the prophets, the false prophets, notice what he says, the prophets prophesy lies in my name, I sent them not, God says, there are prophets who I did not send, there are prophets who I did not ordain, there are prophets who do not prophesy the truth. They prophesy lies. And yes, they do it in my name, but I sent them not. Notice what he says. Neither have I commanded them, neither spake I unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination, and a thing of naught, and the deceit of their hearts. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesied my name, and I sent them not. He says, look, there are prophets out there that stand up. They call themselves men of God. They call themselves preachers of God. They call themselves prophets of God. But God said, I didn't send them. They're preaching a sermon, but they're not preaching what I had bid for them to preach. He said, I sent them not. Yet they say, the sword and famine shall not be in the land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. Now keep your place there in Jeremiah, but go with me to the book of 2 Timothy in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter number 4. If you find all the T books, they're all clustered together in the New Testament. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy chapter number 4. And look at verse number 2. You say, what is the bidding? What is the bidding that God bids. You say, how do I know when a man of God stands up and preaches the Word of God? How do I know when a man of God is standing up and preaching, you know, the preaching that God bids him, or if I'm listening to a false prophet, if I'm listening to a preacher that's uh, preaching lies? Are you there in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4? No, notice, you know, look at verse 1. Notice what he says. I charge thee therefore before God. This is Paul training Timothy, Paul training a, a young preacher, he says, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Verse 2, preach the word. So look, your first indication as to whether you are listening to a, uh, a preacher of God, a man of God who's preaching uh, right, or if you're preaching to a, uh, if you're listening to a false prophet, is ask yourself this question, does this preacher preach the word? And look, if you were honest with yourself, you, you would find out that the truth of the matter is that in most pulpits in America today, this morning, 
You're going to find a whole lot of so-called preachers that are going to stand up and they're going to read a verse and then they're going to go on for 20 minutes and tell you the stories, tell you these anecdotes, tell you these little tales here and there. They're going to say some nice things and then they're going to pray and they're going to continue on with their rock concert and they'll have done a lot of things, but the one thing that they failed to do was to preach the word. See, a prophet of God does not preach from their own heart. They do not preach their own thoughts. They do not say and bring the message that they have devised in their mind, but they bring you the Word of God. That's why at Verity Baptist Church, whether you come here on Sunday morning or on Sunday night or on Wednesday night, we attempt to give you the Word of God in heavy doses. You say, why do, why do we turn to so many passages and why do we look at so many scriptures and why, do you, why, do you, why are you preaching verse by verse through the book of Jonah and you're preaching verse by verse through the chapters in First and Second Kings that have to do with the life of Elijah and you're preaching verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the book of Ezekiel. Why, why so much Bible? Here's why. Because we have been commanded to preach the word. Now notice, it's not just preaching the word. Because you say, well, I know a liberal preacher down the street, and he seems to preach the Word a little bit. You know, he gets down in the Word of God and gets a little bit. But I want you to notice there's more to it. Verse 2, preach the Word. Then he says this, be instant in season, out of season. Here's what that means. It means that you preach the Word, even the parts that aren't popular. Even the parts that aren't fashionable. When he says, be instant in season, out of season, he says, you preach it whether people like it or not, whether it's popular or not, whether people like it or not. See, there was a time in our country when any preacher and every preacher would get up and rip, you know, on homosexuality and on the sodomites, and nobody batted an eye to it. In fact, everybody just thought that was normal. That was right. It's good to preach against the perverseness of homosexuality. And by the way, it is perverted. But yet today, you know what you have today? You have preachers who will skirt around that issue, who will avoid those passages, who will not go down that road. You say, why? Because everybody has a sodomite in their family. That's why. Because even mentioning it is going to offend somebody today. But you know, you say, well, I know a preacher. He never, you know, he never brings up, you know, the sodomite issue. He never brings up the abortion issue. He ne- There's certain things he never brings up. Well, then you've got a false prophet as a preacher. Because a true man of God is not going to preach what he thinks people would like. He's going to preach what he believes God would like. And he would bring the preaching and he would bid. He would preach at God's bidding. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Notice, biblical preaching is negative preaching. Today, you go to most churches today and you're going to hear a positive only message. You're never going to have somebody tell you you're wrong. You're never going to have somebody tell you that's sin. You're never going to have somebody tell you you need to get right with God. You're never going to have somebody tell you, here's what God says. Here's what God expects. Here's what God wants. And you're not matching up to it. And you need to get right with God. You're never going to have that. In most churches in America today, you're only going to hear a positive only, make you feel good sermon. But that's not biblical preaching. Because preach the word means you're instant in season, out of season. It means, notice, you reprove, you rebuke, and exhort. Now look, I'm not, I'm not against exhortation. And in fact, I, I believe that every sermon should have these aspects to it. They should have a reproving aspect 
a rebuking aspect and an exhorting aspect. Reprove means you're teaching someone where they're wrong. You're wrong about this. Rebuking someone is you're sharply telling them, you know, you need to get right with God. And exhorting is that you're encouraging them. I believe every sermon should have these aspects. You know, I do my best to end every sermon on a positive note. But here's the thing. The whole sermon is not positive. We start with reprove, we get into rebuke, and if you don't walk out of the sermon, you know, through the rebuke, then we'll end with some exhortation. But you say, well, why do you do it that way, Pastor? Because I'm mean and angry, and I just like to, you know, piss people off. You know, people get this idea, like, Pastor McManus just likes to have people mad at him. No, you know what? I'm like anyone else. I'd love to be like Joe Lowstein and have 20,000 people just think that I'm the greatest thing on earth, but I'd be a false prophet. Because the reason that people love Joel Osteen, the, people, the reason people love Billy Graham, the reason people love Rick Warren, the reason people love Francis Chan, the reason people love John McCarthy, I mean, name the false prophet. The reason they love them is because they're positive only. They love them because they're never going to reprove and they're never going to rebuke and all they're going to do is exhort. But look, a Bible preacher, a Bible preacher will not only preach the word, but they will be instant in season, out of season. They're not going to take anything out. Look, we, we are responsible as men of God to preach the whole counsel of God. And they will reprove, and they will rebuke, and they will exhort, and they will do it with all long-suffering and doctrine. Now notice verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now we're supposed to preach with all long-suffering and doctrine. But God says, look, there's coming a day when people are not going to endure sound doctrine. They're not going to want to learn the Bible. They're not going to want to hear what God has to say. But after their own lust, so they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. He says there's coming a day when so-called Christian people will run after teachers that are going to make them feel good. They're going to tickle their ears, and they're going to pat them on the back, and they're going to pet them, and they're going to feed them a treat like they're a dog. And they're going to walk out of that church just wagging their tail as happy as could be. Because there's coming a day, and I'm here to tell you the day is today, when people will not endure some doctrine. But please understand this. You are in a church today that has chosen on purpose that we would rather please God than please men. And therefore, we will preach God's bidding. We will preach at the bidding of God. We will preach what God has called us to do. And I want you to notice, he says there, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. You've got two out of three are negative. You say, why? Because biblical, look, just listen to this. Biblical preaching is negative preaching. You can't tell people they're sinning and they're wrong and show them why they're wrong without being negative. Now, here's what's interesting. Go to Jeremiah chapter 1. Did you keep your place there in Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 1. It's also the verse that's in your uh, bulletin if you want to look at it. But notice what God told Jeremiah the prophet. God told Jeremiah the prophet that when you stand up to preach, he said, I want you to do certain things. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 10, he says, See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdom. Notice what he tells him to do. To root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. He tells them, there's six things I want you to do. The first thing is, I want you to root out. That's negative. So I want you, there's some things that have taken root in people's lives, and you need to root that out. 
He says, the next thing I want you to do is to pull down. There's some things that people have spent their lives building, and they've wasted their lives. They built things they didn't have to build. They shouldn't have built. And Jeremiah, I want you to not only root out some things that have taken root in their lives, but I want you to pull down some things that they've built in their lives. Negative, negative. I want you to destroy. He says there's some things that people have done in their lives and they've built up and they've planted and they've rooted it and they've built it up. And Jeremiah, I want you to rain on their parade. That's what God is saying. There's certain things that just need to be destroyed in people's lives. And I want you to destroy it. Notice what he said, negative. And to throw it out. I want you to throw, find the altars in their lives and throw them down. Negative. You say, well, why? Why do that? Here's why. To build and to plant. Here's what's interesting. Six things. Four things negative, two things positive. It seems like God has this team, this theme in the Bible that preaching should be two-thirds negative, one-third positive. I mean, he says, root out, pull down, destroy, throw down. And then end with something positive, build up and plant. He tells him in, in uh, you know, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, two things negative, one thing positive, exhort. So look, just you say, I don't like the sermon already. Wait till the end, it'll get better. The last third will be nice, all right? But here's the point. God has called us to preach his word. But when you preach the word of God, here's the problem. It's going to be negative. You say, why? Because God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and we come short of the glory of God. But I want you to notice something negative, uh, something, uh, excuse me, it was negative, but I want you to notice something secondly uh, in regards to the elements of Jonah's preaching. Go back to Jonah. Keep your place there in, in, in Jeremiah. We're going to be coming back to Jeremiah. Not only was it scriptural, but I want you to notice that it was specific. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went into Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. We're going to come back to that verse in a second. Verse 4. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, notice what he said. He said, yet 40 days. Very specific. And Nineveh. That's his application. Nobody walked away from him saying, I wonder who he's talking to. Notice what he says, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I want you to notice that not only was his sermon scriptural, but it was specific. He specifically, and look, here in this passage, we, we see his sermon. I mean, that's the, 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 what we get for his sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words. Now, I don't believe this is all Jonah said. This is what the Bible, you know, wrote down for us. I'm sure he, there was other things that he said. But he came to them, and he brought them a negative sermon. He said, because of your sin, because of your violence, because of your idolatry and adultery, he said, God's judgment is coming upon you. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I want you to notice, he brought a scriptural message. Why? Because he brought the word of God. He brought what God told him and what God had bidden him. But he brought a very specific sermon of judgment and of preaching to them. That they need to respond to God and get right with God. Did you keep your place in Jeremiah? If you if keep your, continue to keep your place in Jeremiah, but go into the book of Isaiah, just right before Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58, look at verse 1. Notice what God told Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Isaiah 58, verse 1 says this. 
Cry aloud! The word cry in the Bible is not talking about like crying, like tears coming out of your eyes. You know, the, the King James Bible uses the word weep or wept for that. When we see the word cry in the Bible, it's, it's what we would call yell. Notice what he says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. He said, I want you to cry and to be loud. In Ezekiel, and I won't have you turn there because we're studying Ezekiel, but in Ezekiel, he tells Ezekiel the prophet, when you stand up to preach, he said, I want you to clap your hands and stomp your feet. He said, I want you to pound the pulpit. He said, I, here's what he's saying. Here's what biblical preaching is. Not only is it scriptural and not only is it specific, but you know that it ought to be dynamic. We're not standing up here. Look, I'm not standing up here on a little bar stool and just kind of sharing with you. Let me share with you this morning. Let me encourage you. No, God said, cry aloud. Spare not. Lift up thy voice like a drum. He told Ezekiel to stomp his foot and to clap his hand. You said to be done. And by the way, you guys that want to be preachers, you want to get, you know, my approval to send you off as a preacher, I'm looking for you to be dynamic. If you're just going to stand up here at the men's preaching nights and just kind of share with people, that's fine. But it's not getting you anywhere with me. Because biblical preaching is dynamic preaching. Biblical preaching, you stand up and you cry aloud and you, notice, spare not. That's the same thing as be instant in season, out of season. Don't leave anything out. Spare not means you don't skip anything. Spare not is you, is you, don't, you don't edit anything. Look, when it comes to the preaching of God's word, we do not have the right, we do not have editorial rights over God's word. I don't get to edit out, well, I just don't think people are ready for this. I don't think, you know, our culture and our society, no, you know what? It's thus saith the Lord God, this is what God said. His preaching was scriptural and his preaching was specific. You're there in Isaiah, flip over back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Chapter 1. Let me just warn you. You say, oh man, that's great. I want to stand up and, and preach the word of God. And I want to be specific. Because notice, and I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't emphasize this. Isaiah 58.1. Cry loud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. Don't miss this part. And show my people their transgression. And the house of Jacob their sins. He's saying, I want you to, spe- to spell it out. Be specific. Make sure they don't leave. He tells another prophet, make it plain. He said, make sure they do not leave kind of wondering. I wonder what pastor thinks about alcohol. No, you ought to leave here knowing if you're drinking alcohol, you need to get right with God. Look not thou upon the wine. Is what the, You see how that was clear? It wasn't this thing like, well, you know, if you're doing it in moderation, and I kind of think that, just don't let it get out of control. No, get right with God. You got alcohol in your house? Go dump it. Go flush it down the toilet. God doesn't want you to drink alcohol. Well, Jesus turned water into wine. You need to read the Bible. And that's a sermon for another day, but, you know, we won't get into that. But if you think Jesus turns water into alcohol, you're either reading the NIV or you're not, you know, you're not reading the Word of God. But you say, but you say well, I, I want to preach scripturally, and I want to preach specifically, and I want to preach dynamically. Okay, well, here's the, just, just let me warn you, all right? So you don't think, you know, you don't get into this thing without being warned. Be ready for people to hate you. Jeremiah 1, verse 8. Notice, God told Jeremiah, I want you to, to, to root up and to pull down and to throw down and to destroy. And then God tells Jeremiah this, Jeremiah 1, 8. Be not afraid of their faces. 
Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. You say, why would Jeremiah tell, why would God tell Jeremiah to not be afraid of their faces? Well, some of you just pull out a mirror and look at your face right now. <laughs> That's why. Because when you preach scripturally and you preach specifically, you're going to offend people. You're going to make people mad. You're going to make people upset. Say, Pastor, how do you deal with that? You know, I, I, the way I deal with this, I just have to tell myself that I'm here to please God, not men. And the truth of the matter is that some of you need to be offended. Some of you need to be shaken up. Some of you need to be agitated. Some of you need, that, that's what God said. Now, you can go to liberal church down the street, you'll never feel like this. You'll be filing for divorce, committing adultery, living in fornication, being a drug addict, a pill popper, a drunkard, doing whatever. And man, that preacher down there, he just never makes me feel, always never makes me feel bad. I always feel good. Really? You, you think you should be walking out of church feeling good when you're committing adultery? Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Look at verse 17, same chapter. Thou therefore gird up thy loins and rise and speak unto them all that I command thee. Notice what he says. Be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. See, here's what I'm saying. When you preach scripturally and when you preach specifically, some people are not going to like it. And that's okay. But you know what? Some people, some people are going to respond to it. And they're going to get right with God. And they're going to get sin out of their lives. And they're going to learn to walk with God. And they're going to draw nigh to God. And that's why we do what we do. So I want you to notice, you know, we see the elements of preaching that makes a difference. Now, it's not preaching that will attract a crowd. Preaching that will attract a crowd is what all the mega churches are doing. The positive only preaching... If we get a rock concert going and Pastor Jimenez, you know, gets a bar stool up here instead of a pulpit and starts just sharing with people 20 minutes, nothing negative, we could have a 1,000 people here too. But, you know, it wouldn't make a difference in their lives. They'd walk in not saved, not right with God, making bad decisions, and they'd walk out not saved, not right with God, making. We're talking about preaching that makes a difference. And you know, the elements of preaching that makes a difference is that it's scriptural and it's specific. But I want you to notice, secondly, this morning, if you go back to Jonah, keep your place there in Jeremiah. Go back to Jonah chapter 3. We talked about the elements of preaching that makes a difference, but I want you to notice, secondly, the exposition of preaching that makes a difference. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? I want you to notice how Jonah not only had the right type of preaching, but he tried to get it out to as many people as possible. We're talking, you know, you, you talk about a gun expo and a home and garden expo. What are you doing? You're, you're exposing people to something. You're trying to put something out there. You're trying to publicize it. Well, you know what? God's preaching ought to be, have an exposition as well. And I want you to notice how, Jer uh, how, how uh, Jonah, excuse me, did that. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Notice what it says. And Jonah began to enter into the city a uh, 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 day's journey. Notice what it says. And he cried. That's the dynamic part. You don't find men of God in the Bible who are just kind of sharing with people. Just let me share with you. Let me talk to you. No, you know what, God? You say, well, why, why does God want you to cry and yell? Because lives are, they hang in the balance, that's why. 
because people's lives hang in the balance because there's urgency to it. And he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I want you to notice that it was declared so that all could hear. It was declared so that all could hear. Anyone who wanted to hear Jonah's message was able to hear it. If they wanted to hear it, they could hear it. It was declared in such a way. Notice, Jonah did not go around telling people, now, I've got a message for you, but, you know, it's a little radical. Not everybody can handle it. So, you know, you show up to this one meeting and this one day, you have to give a secret password and do a secret handshake, and we'll bring you in. And it's like, oh, oh you, you've got, you're, are you a secret society? And they're like, no, it's a sacred society. <laughs> you know, the Mormons. But here's the thing. That's not what Jonah did. Jonah wasn't hiding his preaching. And you know what's interesting? This is what Fundamental Baptists do. It's funny, after 2016, when I preached that sermon that went viral, it's funny because, you know, my wife and I, we, we grew up Fundamental Baptists. And so when we started a church here in Sacramento, an independent Fundamental Baptist church, it was always kind of funny to us to see how the other IFB churches in the area would react to us. You know, so from time to time, if we were bored or whatever, we had some time to kill, we'd just kind of check out their websites, you know, different churches, see what's going on or whatever. You know, the churches we grew up in and we had fellowship with as kids. And it's funny because in 2016, when our sermon went viral, my wife had this idea like, oh, let's see how all the other churches in Sacramento are doing. You know what's funny? We went to every church in Sacramento, and all, it's almost like they had a conference. They all just took down all their preaching. It all went on. They all had preaching up there, for, you know, for years. And like every single one, back to back to back, they all removed their preaching. Because they're like, oh man, I might have accidentally said something negative about the sodomites and I don't want somebody to find that. You know, I might have accidentally said something negative about the homosexuals like 20 years ago and I don't want somebody to find that because I don't want, you know, what's happening to Verity to happen to us. And you know, but today, you know, that's how it is. Everyone wants to hide their preaching. Oh, I'll tell you the truth, but uh, you know, don't tell anybody. Make sure nobody knows. You know, but that's not how God tells us to do it. God tells us to declare it so that everyone who wants to hear it can hear it. Matthew chapter 10. Go to Matthew, first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10. We've seen this verse before, but let's look at it again. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 27. Matthew chapter 10, verse 27 says this. This is what Jesus said. What I tell you in darkness... That speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. Jesus said, I don't want you hiding the message. I don't want you hiding the sermon. He said, I want you to get up on the housetops and scream and yell and declare it so that people can hear it. Why? Because preaching that makes a difference not only has the elements of scriptural and specific, but it needs to, have to be exposed. It needs to be on exp- put on exposition. It needs to be declared so that all could hear it. And notice, Jonah, not only did he declare it so that all could hear it, but it was delivered to as many people as possible. Go back to Jonah chapter 3. Look at verse 2. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 2. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 2, notice what he says, Arise, go unto Nineveh. Notice what he says, That great city. God chose a big audience. By the way, that's one of the reasons we tell you know, church planners, go to a big city. Go, go somewhere where there's going to be a lot of people. 
You know, you say, what about the little town with 700 people in it? We'll hit the town with 700 people in it when we've hit every city in America that has a million people in it or 500,000 people in it. He said, go to Nineveh, that great city. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh, notice, Nineveh was an exceeding great city. Not only was it a great city, but it was an exceeding great city. This was a big metropolitan city in Jonah's time. It was a three days journey. Meaning, if you, started, if you, if you walked into Nineveh in the edge of town and you just walked for three days straight, it would take you three days before you walked out of Nineveh. For these times, this was a huge city. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and proclaimed the fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest even of them, even to the least of them. We're going to come back to those verses in a second, but notice verse 6. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh. Notice, this was for everybody. Rich and poor, bond and free. He said, you know, this was for everybody. And he arose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes and he caused it to be, I love these words, proclaimed and published. You say, what does that mean? Here's what that means. Jonah's sermon went viral. It was proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decrees of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed nor drink. Now, do me a favor, go, go to the book of Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. If you've got, all, at the beginning of the Old Testament, you've got all the first and second books. They're all clustered together. First, second Samuel, first, second Kings, first, second Chronicles. Go, go to Second Chronicles, and while you go there, let me just read for you a few verses. Because in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 7, it says that his sermon was proclaimed and published. It was not only declared in such a way where it was available for everyone, but it was delivered in such a way where it was people had access to it, as many people as possible. And here's what I want you to say. Throughout the Bible, there is a theme that God wants us to take His message. God wants us to take His message and declare it to as many people as possible. Matthew chapter 7, verse 36. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read this for you. And He charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more, a great deal, they published it. Mark chapter 13 and verse 10. Don't turn there, I'll just read this for you. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. Luke chapter 8 and verse 39. Return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. Acts chapter 10 and verse 37, that the word I say ye know which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Acts 13 verse 49, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. See, our job is to take God's message and to declare it so that all can hear and to deliver it to as many people as possible. And I just want you to understand, you know, the ministry and philosophy of Verity Baptist Church is to proclaim and publish God's word to everyone, as many people as possible. Whether they like it or not, you know, that's between them and God. Our job is just to try to get it out there. Our job is just to try to put it out there. Yesterday, uh, my wife and I were out so and I knocked on the door, and I asked the lady, do you know for sure if you died today? Are you on your way to heaven? And she said, that's a personal question. And this lady just got done telling me, you know, she's a Christian, and she said she's on her way to heaven. 
or you know, she was saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to this church or whatever, and I asked her a question. That's a personal question. And I, and I said to her, well, you know, Jesus said, go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus said that he wants us to teach all nations. I said, the reason we're out here asking that personal question is because God wants us to get his message to every single person as possible. I mean, you don't want somebody to go to hell, do you? And the lady's all like, you know. By the end of the conversation, she's thanking us. She's like, thank you for going out and telling people, you know. And he said, why do you go out there and knock doors and do all those things? Because our job is to deliver and declare the message in such a way that anyone who wants access to it can have it. Our philosophy here at Ready Baptist Church, you say, you know, what, what are we trying to do? We're trying to proclaim and publish God's word. That's all we do. That's what we do. I wake up every day. I wake up every day asking myself, how can we get the seed out of the barn? How can we get the word of God out there to as many people as possible? And, you know, let me just give you, because I don't know if some of you, maybe some of you don't know everything that we do or what we're trying to do or what we're trying to accomplish, you know, but we're trying to proclaim and publish God's word. You say, how do we do that at Very Baptist Church? Well, there's several things we do. The first thing, is we, the, the first thing we do is that we host three church services every week where I preach God's word to anyone who wants to hear. Anybody who wants to hear it, as long as you're not some sick, perverted reprobate, can walk into church and hear the sermon. You know, and Lord, you know, praise the Lord up to this point. You know, the Lord has allowed us to, on Sunday mornings, anywhere between 140 to 160 people hear God's word published and proclaimed. Every Sunday night and Wednesday night, you know, 120 to 140 people show up to church every week and hear the word of God published and proclaimed. But that's not it. We also take those sermons. And not only those sermons, but we make additional videos. In fact, somewhere between three to six videos every week are posted on our church's social media you know, outlets, specifically on our YouTube channel. And those uh, sermons are put out there. And you know that every video, every sermon that's preached from this pulpit, every video we make, gets anywhere between 500 to 1,500, some 3,500, some 5,000, some 7,000. But on average, between 500 and 1,500 views. You say, why do you do that? Because you're trying to be famous? Now, it hasn't worked on making me famous. Infamous, maybe, but not famous. You know, you say, well, why do you do that? Because we're trying to publish and proclaim God's Word. Because we're trying to expose people to God's Word as much as possible. At Verity Baptist Church, we motivate and we, motiv- and we mobilize 80-plus soul winners every week. An army of soul winners, praise the Lord, for you who who are motivated and mobilized in such a way where you give up of your own time and you go out into the community, into the highways and hedges. And do you know that our church on average knocks 1,000 to 1,500 doors a week with 80-plus soul winners? Asking this question, do you know for sure if you're that today or you're on the way to heaven? If you don't, can we show you how? We'd love to take a few minutes and show you how you can know for sure. And you know those evangelists don't get paid? They do it because they love God and they love people. You say, well, why do you do that? Why spend so much time and effort? I mean, doesn't it take, look, it takes time to organize that many soul winners. Maps and invitations and things. You say, why do you do that? Because we're trying to publish and proclaim. Here uh, in, uh, you know, something we've been doing is we, we get the, the mailers of, of new movements. Our church, every week, we've been sending 100 to 150 new move-ins, people who just bought houses in the Sacramento area. We ship them a, 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 a biblical documentary and resources and invitations to the church. And, you know, you say, why do you do that? 
because we're trying to publish and proclaim God's word. You know, here in, in November, we're going to start broadcasting an hour-long sermon every week. It has the potential of reaching 1.5 million households. You say, why, why do that? Isn't that a lot of work? And doesn't that take time? And look, it does. It takes time, and it takes money. It takes energy. You know, someone, Brother Oliver, has to sit there and edit out the videos and get them in the right format and send them and all that. You say, why do that? Because we're trying to publish and proclaim God's word. That's why. Because we're trying to get the seed out of the barn. Because God has determined that we should not only preach right, but we should put that preaching on exposition. We should have a preaching expo. We should declare it so that all could hear. And we should deliver it to as many people as possible. You say, but will people respond to it? That's between them and God. Our job is just to give them the word. Our job is just to give them the opportunity. Our job, and look, every, every hook in the, in, in the water counts. And you say, yeah, but you know, you, 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 have all, you have videos about whether Christians should have tattoos. <laughs> you, know, you have videos about this, you have videos about... But you know, every single one of those hooks is a hook in the water. Because something may not, you know, be interesting to you, but it'll be interesting to somebody. And they'll click on it, and they'll listen to it, and they'll click on something else, and they'll click on something else, and eventually they'll hear something, and they'll get saved, or they'll come to church, and they'll get saved, or they'll come to church, and someone will talk to them after service or whatever. Look... Every time, the word of God does not come back void. Every time we publish and proclaim God's word, there's power in it. Not because of the person delivering it, because the word of God has power. So we saw the elements of preaching that makes a difference. What are the elements? It's scriptural and it's specific. We saw the exposition of preaching that makes a difference. It was declared so that all could hear, and it was delivered to as many people as possible. But thirdly this morning, I want you to notice the effects of preaching that makes a difference. Notice the effect it had. Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. So the people of Nineveh, notice these words, believed God. So the people of Nineveh believed God. I believe that the people of Nineveh got saved. I believe that these people in Nineveh were going to see them all in heaven. Why? Because they believed God. In the New Testament, the question is asked, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is given. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, as New Testament believers, the name of Jesus Christ has been revealed to us. And there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In the Old Testament, they knew, you know, God simply as God or the Lord or the Almighty. But when they believed God, I believe they got saved. Let me just prove that to you just real quickly. Go to Romans chapter 4 in the New Testament. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 4 and look at verse number 3. Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. Notice what the Bible says about Abraham. Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. For what saith the scriptures? Notice what it says. Abraham, Old Testament character, how did he get saved? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So how did Abraham get saved? He believed God. What did the people in Nineveh do? They believed God. So I want you to notice that these people got saved. And look, as a result of the soul-winning ministry of preaching the gospel to unsaved people out in the community, or even as a byproduct of the preaching ministry of this pulpit and when we teach and preach God's Word, the result should be that people are getting saved and that they're believing on God. And here we see a great revival. Why? Because many people in Nineveh 
got saved and they believed God. Now, I want to just deal with a, with a subject and go, go back to Jonah chapter 3, if you would not mind. And actually, go to Jonah 3 and then find Matthew chapter 4. Jonah chapter 3 and Matthew 4. And I think I asked you to find Second Chronicles, so make sure you're there also. But I want to deal with this subject about repentance and salvation. A lot of people have questions about this, repentance and salvation. Does someone need to repent of their sins in order to be saved? And Jonah chapter 3 kind of deals with this, so I want to answer this question. Repentance and salvation. Does someone need to repent of their sins to be saved? Now, today, many preachers and even very well-known preachers teach that someone must repent of their sins in order to be saved. That phrase is used a lot. Repent of your sins, repent of your sins, repent of your sins. And because that phrase is used so commonly, repent of your sins, because it's used so often, people will assume, people will assume that anytime they see the word repent or repentance in the Bible, that it is referring to repent of your sins. In fact, many people believe that the only thing you can repent of is your sins. So you see the word repent? And they assume, repent of your sins, you know? And sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll talk to someone and we'll tell them, hey, salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Salvation is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know? And they'll say, well, no, well, you got to repent of your sins in order to be saved. You know, and I, I've done this many times where I've told people, show me that. Show me in the Bible where it says that someone has to repent of their sins to be saved. And they'll take me to a verse like this. Go to Matthew chapter 4. It's not always this verse. It's often this verse, but they'll usually take me to a verse like this, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Because someone will say, well, of course you've got to repent of your sins to be saved. And I'll say, oh, show me that. Show me in the Bible where it says you have to repent of your sins to be saved. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they'll say, see? And I'll say, I, I missed it. Where does it say repent of your sins to be saved? I'll say, well, it says repent. And I see repent. What I'm not seeing is where it says, of your sins, to be saved. I was like, whoa, it's talking about your sins. When it says, repent, it's talking about your sins. Because preachers say, repent of your sins, repent of your sins, repent of your sins. So people get this idea. Anytime the Bible uses the word repent, it's of your sins. Here's the problem with that. Go, to jo- go back to Jonah chapter 3. The problem with assuming that every time you see the word repent, it's in reference to your sin. The problem with that is that in the Bible... The person who repents more than anyone in the Bible is God, Almighty God Himself. Jonah chapter 3, verse 9. I'll give you one example. Multiple examples throughout the Bible. Jonah 3, 9. Notice what the Bible says. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not? Notice verse 10. And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. Notice, don't miss this. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Well, every time it says repent, it means repent of your sins. Okay, did God repent of his sins? God doesn't sin. God is holy. God is without sin. So when you have this assumption that every time you see the word repent, it must be of sin, you've got a wrong assumption. Because the person who's repenting the most in the Bible is God, who doesn't sin. So there's a problem when you go to all these verses that say repent, and then you add to it of your sins, because not every time the Bible uses the word repent is it talking about repenting of your sin. Here's what you need to understand. The word repent means to turn. 
It means to rethink, to reconsider, or to change your mind. Let me prove it to you. Look at verse 9 again. Who can tell if God, notice the wording, will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? Did you get your place there in 2 Chronicles chapter 6? Look at verse 37. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 37. Notice what it says. Here, Solomon is talking about people repenting. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 37 says this, Yet, if they, notice, these word, notice this word, Yet, if they bethink themselves in the land whither they are carried captive. God, here's that, once God's judgment comes and they're carried captive, if they reconsider, if they change their mind, yet if they bethink themselves in the land whither they are carried captive, and turn and pray unto thee in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done amiss, and have dealt wickedly. What's, what, what are they doing there? They're repenting because they bethink, because they turn. See, the word repent means to turn. It means to bethink. It means to reconsider. It means to think again. It means to change your mind. So, look, the phrase repent of your sins, here's what's interesting. The phrase, repent of your sins, because you hear all these preachers talk about, repent of your sins, repent of your sins, repent of your sins. The interesting thing is that the phrase, repent of your sins, that, you can't even find that phrase in the entire Bible. Amen. You can find the word repent and repentance. You can find the word sin. But you can't find this sentence structure, repent of your sins. You can't find that. You can't find that syntax. If you, if you pull up like a, like, like a word, like a Bible, you know, uh, software where you can search different things, I, I use the Bible software eSword, and on eSword it will allow you to put a phrase in there, and you can, you can, you know, choose to look for the exact phrase, meaning I want to see if I can find this phrase in the Bible. You put the words, repent of your sins, you, you set it to choose to, to look for the exact phrase, you hit enter, says no verse is found. Because that phrase, repent of your sins, isn't even in the Bible. Isn't even in the, in the Word of God. So here's the problem. If repent of your sins means to turn from, you know, means to turn from sins, if, if you believe that in the context of salvation, if someone has to repent of their sins in order to be saved, the problem with that is that you're adding works to salvation. Because the Bible defines it as works. Are you there in Jonah? Go back to Jonah, chapter 3. Look at verse 10. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Don't miss this. And God saw their, notice what it says, works. And God saw their works. What did they do? That they turned from their evil way. See, these people turned from their evil way. They repented. They decided to turn away from it. And you say, what's wrong with turning from your evil way? None wrong with it, but I just want you to notice that God calls it works. And God saw their works that they turn from their evil way. And here's the thing. Salvation is clearly not of works. Amen. I mean, Ephesians 29, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So you say, well, Pastor, you know, does repentance not play a role in salvation? Go to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Because, you know, when, when men like me preach these types of things, then people falsely accuse us. You know, the big false accusation in regards to this doctrine is they'll say, oh, that church doesn't believe in repentance. They don't believe in repenting. No, wait a minute. We believe in 
and, and repentance, the Bible teaches about repentance, we just don't believe in adding works to salvation. And repenting of your sins is works. And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. You say, well, then what about in regards to salvation? You know, what is repentance in regards to salvation? Well, remember, repentance means to turn, to bethink, to reconsider, to change your mind. Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to give you several verses on this. Notice what it says. Matthew 21, verse 32. For John, this is Jesus speaking, For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. Remember, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. In order to be saved, you have to believe. And when you believe not, that's what condemns you. That's what sends you to hell. Notice Jesus said, For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye, he's talking to the, the Jews, the Pharisees, he says, ye believe them not. He says, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. He said, you did not believe the publicans and the harlots. They did believe. Notice, and he, when he had seen it, repented not afterward. Oh, is he talking about repenting of your sins? No. Repented not afterward? What would, if they would have repented, what would have been the product of their repentance? That ye might believe him. See, this is what Jesus is teaching. He's saying, you did not believe, but if you would have repented... If you would have bethought it, if you would have reconsidered and changed your mind, you would have decided to go from not believing to believing. Why? Because what saves you? Believing. Amen. What condemns you? Not believing. He says, look, ye believed them not, but the publicans and the hearts believed them, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterwards that ye might believe. See, in regards to salvation, repentance is not repenting of your sin. That's works. It's repenting of unbelief. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Go there. You're there in Matthew Next book over is Mark. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 says this, And saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye! Notice what he says, though. And believe the gospel. Why? Because when someone repents in regards to salvation, they have to go from unbelief to belief. They have to go from the wrong belief to the right belief. Go to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. You're there in Mark, you're going to go past Luke, John, into the book of Acts. They, look, when we walk up to a Catholic who believes that they're going to go to heaven because they go to the confessional booth, because they got baptized, because they keep the sacraments, because they do, their trust is in those religious acts. When they get saved, they have to repent and turn from what they were trusting in which was their works or their religion, and they have to now no longer believe or trust in those things and believe in Jesus Christ. That's repentance in regards to salvation. And ye repented not afterwards that ye might believe him. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Acts 19 and verse 4 says this, Then said Paul, Paul here is speaking about John's ministry, because when we, we, preach, when we talk about this repentance issue, people say, well, John preached repentance. Okay, well, let's see what John preached, according to Paul. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. He said, it's true that he baptized with the baptism of repentance. What was he saying, though? Saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. See, repentance in regards to salvation is you're believing the wrong thing. You're trusting Joseph Smith. You're trusting Allah. You're trusting whatever it is you're believing in. And you got to quit, you're an atheist, and you got to quit believing that and, believe, and, and now repent in your mind. Choose to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's the teaching. Look, repenting of sin is works. God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. So we cannot add works to salvation, but you say, does repentance play a role? Repentance plays a role if you're trusting in and believing the wrong thing, then you have to turn from that belief system. You have to quit trusting that and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just say this, because we're going to deal with it here in the rest of the passage. Repenting of sin does play a role in the Christian life. God wants Christians to repent of their sins. Listen to me. Not to be saved. That would be adding works to salvation. But once you're saved, God wants you to repent of your sins. God wants you to get things right in your life. God wants you to, 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 to start living right and start living like Him. But if you're doing those things to be saved, you're not even saved because you're trusting in the wrong thing. You're trusting in works. But look, once somebody is saved, yes, should they be repenting of their sins? Absolutely. And let me just make this clear because I think people often get confused by this of the story we're looking at in Jonah and just in, in life. Sometimes repenting for salvation and repenting of sin happens at the same time or in the same day. Let me give you an illustration. When I met my wife, you know, we were 17 years old. When I met my wife, she was in college. She'd graduated early from high school. She was in college, and she was an atheist. Okay, she was, in, she was a smart girl, whatever. She was in college, and, and college had basically convinced her about, uh, you know, about atheism, to quit believing God. She had grown up Catholic, but she had forsaken that belief system and just believed in no God at all. And, you know, it took months and months of me talking to her. We were teenagers working at Subway. You know, I was giving her the gospel and things like that. It took months and months. Eventually, my wife got saved. She repented of not believing in God and choosing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and she got saved. Now, here's what's interesting. Up to that point, she was just your regular, worldly, 17-year-old girl. You know, going to college and doing what 17-year-old girls in the world do and whatever. But when she got saved, she started coming to church three times a week. She started going soul winning. She started changing the way she dressed, and she got rid of pants, and, you know, she, she threw away all her pants and bought skirts and dresses and started dressing modestly. And her family thought, like, she'd join a cult, you know. And, you know, she started, she started living right, started reading the Bible. Now, here's the thing. She didn't do any of those things to be saved. But she just has a testimony, and some of you have the same testimony, that on the day she got saved, she also just started living for God. Hey, praise the Lord for that. But realize that that's not everybody's story. In fact, that's rare. Most people, we knock on their door, they get saved, they never grow. You say, what's the difference? Here's the difference. Preaching that makes a difference. She started going to church and started hearing biblical preaching. That's why she grew. Some Christians, they get saved, but they never come to church, so they just live their worldly lifestyles. So realize that those things can happen at the same time, but they don't always happen at the same time. In fact, they're rare. Most people that get saved later in life, they don't live for God because of the fact that they don't start coming to church, they don't start reading the Bible. But some Christians, they start coming to church immediately. They start reading the Bible. They start growing. For some people, it's different. Look, I, when I was saved, I, I was saved as a very young kid. You know, I don't really have that testimony. You know, it's not like when I got saved, you know, because these repent of your sinners, they're like, whenever you get saved, there has to be a change in your life. You know, when I was just a little kid and I got saved, it's not like I was like, you know what? I used to not eat my broccoli. When my mom wasn't looking, I'd put it in the napkin and throw it away. But after I got saved, brother, 
I changed my ways. I started eating my broccoli every day. I, I mean, I started making my bed. I, I, I started getting along with my siblings. It's, you know, not everybody has that testimony. Because salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But some people do have that testimony. And the people of Nineveh had that testimony. But don't think that because some people just begin to live for God the same day they got saved, that people who don't live for God aren't saved. Because salvation is your faith. What are you trusting in? But yes, God does want people to repent of their sins, not to be saved, but after they are saved. Go back to Jonah chapter 3. Let's finish this up. Jonah chapter 3. So I want you to notice that the people of Jonah, they believed, so they got saved. But they were like my wife, were like some of you. They also got right with God on that same day. And they repented of their sins. They repented of their unbelief to be saved. And then they also repented and got right with God on that day. And I just want to just real quickly, because I'm already out of time, but let me give you some, uh, you know, characteristics of true repentance. How do you know when somebody has truly repented? Again, not talking about salvation, okay? We spent a whole life all time talking about that. I'm talking about somebody getting right with God. You know, you may have a teenager who's not right with God, or you may have a, a, a husband or a wife that's not right with God, you know? And, and, and then you say, well, when they do get right, how will I identify that? How will I know that? Let me just real quickly give you some characteristics for true repentance. Number one, true repentance produces humility. Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. So the people in Nineveh believed God. They got saved. And proclaim they fast. I don't have time to run the verses, but the Bible says that when we fast, we humble ourselves. We are, you know, hurting ourselves and we're humbling ourselves to, to get closer to God, to know God. Notice, and put on sackcloth. This was something they did to humble themselves. Notice, everyone did it, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose, notice, from his throne. Notice how the king humbled himself. He arose from his throne, his exalted position, and he laid his robe from him and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. All of these are things that they're doing to humble themselves, to, to show that they uh, are, are, are humble before God. Verse 7, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and of his nobles, saying, let neither, notice this, I think this is funny, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, Taste anything, because remember, they're fasting. Let them not feed nor drink water. They're doing an extreme fast, which is a short-term fast, where they're not even drinking water. And look, when you've got your dog fasting, I mean, you know you're trying to get right with God. <laughs> look at verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. All right? This, this is all showing their humility. You say, how will I identify true repentance in my life or in the life of someone that I'm dealing with, well, you'll identify it because you'll see a humility in their lives where they have humbled themselves and they've came contrite to God. But I want you to notice, secondly, they, not only does it, uh, you know, repentance, true repentance produce humility, but it also produces confession. True repentance produces confession. Notice verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, notice, and cry mightily unto God. These, these people were crying out to God. They were confessing. Why? Because the Bible says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins Amen. and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, true repentance not only brings humility or produces humility, it produces confession. And true repentance produces a forsaking. Look at verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, notice what they said. Notice what the Bible says. Let them turn every man from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Again, these people aren't getting saved. They're getting right with God. And they've been humbled. They're now confessing. 
They're not shifting the blame. They're not saying it's somebody else. They're crying out to God. They're confessing, and they are forsaking. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says this, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. When we're talking about repenting of your sins, not for salvation, but just as a Christian in your Christian life, you say, what, what does repentance, true repentance produce in your life? It'll produce humility, it'll produce confession, and it'll produce a forsaking of the sin that you are getting right with God for. Now, let me just uh, g- give you a couple things just real quickly, just kind of as we, as we finish. You're there in Jonah. Go to the book of Amos. Keep your place there in Jonah. But go to Amos, chapter number 3. If you're there in Jonah, just go backwards one page. You got Obadiah, and then you got the book of Amos. Amos chapter 3, and then go back to Jonah just real quickly. Let me show you this. Let me just talk about this word evil. You know, and let me answer this question. Does God do evil? In Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10, the Bible says this. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented, notice, of the evil that he, the he there is referring to God, that he said that he would do unto them, and he, God, did it not. God, the Bible tells us, repented here of the evil. Sometimes people get caught up with this, and they say, well, does God do evil? You know, does God do evil things? Well, notice Amos chapter 3 and verse 6. Amos chapter 3 and verse 6, the Bible says this, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? See, the Bible tells us that God does evil. God was going to do evil to Nineveh. God repented of the evil. He was going to do evil, and he chose not to. You say, well, what is that? Here's what you need to understand. In the Bible, see, oftentimes our problems with the Word of God is that we make assumptions or we don't understand what the Bible teaches. In the Bible, the word evil, the definition of the word evil simply means to hurt. Evil means to hurt. God was going to do evil to Nineveh because God was going to hurt Nineveh. He was going to destroy Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Evil simply simply means to hurt. Here's what you need to understand, okay? All sin is evil. You say, why? Because sin hurts. It hurts people. It hurts you. All sin is evil. But understand this. All evil is not sin. All sin is evil... But all evil is not sin. Let me give you an illustration. Somebody breaks into my house in the middle of the night, and they're trying to hurt my wife or my kids, and I put a hole in their brain with a gun. Did I do evil to that person? Yes, I did. Did I hurt them? Yes, I did. Did I sin? No, I didn't. Because I was protecting my wife and my children. So look, all sin is evil because all sin hurts people, but all evil is not sin because sometimes you may hurt someone, and you're not sinning. And when God was going to hurt Nineveh, he wasn't sinning. It was his right. It was his authority to destroy whatever nation he wants to destroy. So does God do evil? Yes. Does God sin? No, never. Well, how does God do evil and not sin? Evil simply means to hurt. All sin is evil, but not all evil is sin. Go, go to uh, Matthew chapter 12. This is the last place we'll look at. Matthew chapter 12. So what are we even talking about this morning? We're talking about preaching that makes a difference. We learned about the elements of preaching that makes a difference. It's specific and it's scriptural. We learned about the exposition of preaching that makes a difference. It needs to be declared so that all could hear, and it needs to be delivered to as many people as possible. 
And we learned about the effects of preaching that makes a difference. The effects were that people believed and the effects were that people repented. You say, what is our goal here at Radio Baptist Church? Our goal is to get someone to be saved and then to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. To get them saved, to teach all nations, and then also, once they're saved, to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. See, everything we do here, there's two columns you can put. You say, everything we do at Verity Baptist Church falls under two columns. Reach and teach. We reach people with the gospel, and then we teach people the word of God and how to live right and how to do right and how to get sin out of their lives. Our goal is that people will believe and that they will repent. Just like Jonah had people believe in Nineveh and they repented of their sins. We're not wanting them to repent of their sins in order to be saved, but we'd love for them to get saved and then repent of their sins. And if we can do that in the same day, then praise God for it. And praise the Lord for it. So here's a question I have for you. How do you respond to preaching that makes a difference? When the preaching comes down your aisle and it's scriptural and it's specific to you, when it irritates you, when it upsets you, when you're the one who's making the weird faces, one of these days I'm going to get a camera and I'm going to point it in that direction and I'm going to get a big screen that just shows the crowd behind me so you guys can all see yourselves, so you can see what I see. I mean, like, brother so-and-so is under heavy conviction. Look at his face. <laughs> He's really not happy. How do you respond? How do you respond? Matthew chapter 12, are you there? Look at verse 38. We're, we're done right here. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. And certain of the scribes of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. We talked about this when we talked about the sign of the prophet Jonas, but I want you to notice something we didn't look at. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We talked all about, all about that when uh, we were talking about the sign of the prophet Jonas. But I want you to notice verse 41. Notice what Jesus said to these people. The men of Nineveh, these are the men that were there when Jonah preached, shall rise in judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it. Because they repented. Now look, they repented from unbelief to belief. They got saved, but they also repented of their sins and got right with God. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Jesus said, I am greater than Jonah. Jesus said, I am here. They repented when a backslidden preacher that got vomited out of a whale showed up. And, and Jesus says, I'm preaching to you and you won't repent. You won't believe or you won't get right. And he said, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. And let me tell you something. Here, right now, at Verity Baptist Church, a greater than Jonas is here. You say, are you talking about yourself, Pastor? I'm not talking about me. Look, I'm like you. I, I need hard preaching to keep my heart right. I need scriptural, specific preaching. You guys think like, oh, Pastor Jimenez, you know, he preaches these sermons. Yeah, you get it for an hour. I have to, I have to study it and be with it all week long. I have, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm studying these things, I'm thinking, God, you want, me to say, you want me to say what? You know, I mean, it smotes my heart, and I need it. But you know what a greater than Jonas is here? You say, why do you say that? Because Jesus was the word. And you know what we have? We have the word of God. 
And you know, the men of Nineveh, who did not even have the complete word of God, are going to rise in judgment, not just against the people who would not repent of the preaching of Jesus, but they're going to rise in judgment against many Christians in 2018. Because we have a more sure word of prophecy. Because a greater than Jonas is here. When the Bible is preached, you must choose how you will respond to the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, how do you respond? You get mad and upset, leave, or do you respond like the people in Nineveh and you turn, maybe from unbelief to belief, maybe from sin, and you get right with God? Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for these passages you've given us to learn from, these examples you've given us that we can apply in our lives and to our lives. And Lord, I pray you'd help us. Lord, I, I ask if there's somebody in this room today who's believing and trusting in the wrong thing. They're trusting in their works and their religion and the fact that they've quit doing certain things or aren't doing certain things. I pray, Lord, you'd help them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and get saved. And then, Lord, I pray for all of us that are saved, if there's sin in our lives. If there are things that you're convicting us, your Holy Spirit's working on us, we know we need to get it right. We know we need to confess it and forsake it. We need to humble ourselves. Then, Lord, I, I pray that you would do that work in their lives and that you would help them, Lord, to come to that place. Lord, I do pray that you would use the preaching from this church, the ministry from this church, not to exalt us, Lord, but that your word might be exalted, that it might be published and proclaimed throughout this entire city, that there would not be someone in this region who does not have the opportunity to hear the word of God. Lord, I pray you'd use us in that way. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.